You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. And it's going to start with therefore. And you'll notice two therefores here. Uh, Many of the chapters in Hebrews begin with a therefore. Chapter 2 did, chapter 3, chapter 4, and others. They begin with therefore, therefore, therefore. So let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And so this passage is going to be challenging us to look at Jesus, fix our eyes at Jesus, consider Jesus, because he's better than Moses. He's better than all things. So consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So that's the first section there. Jesus is greater than Moses. And then he's gonna actually have a quotation from the Old Testament where he's quoting Psalm 95, but also referencing some stories from the book of Exodus and Numbers. So he he, he says in verse seven as a comparison illustration, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, speaking of the Hebrew forefathers, the people of God in the wilderness, right? Verse nine, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their own heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In fact, we know from the Old Testament that generation, right? For 40 years they wandered and they did not enter the rest or the promised land that was promised. So then he says that Old Testament illustration and he goes in verse 12 and he speaks directly to you and me and he says, take care. He gets his preacher voice in, right? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then for us here, but exhort or encourage one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold fast to our, uh, or hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then verse 15, he's gonna rehash some of the things he shared from that Old Testament passage in Exodus and Numbers. Here he says, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet they still rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of, and here's the key word, unbelief, unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we look at this passage today and we just ask that you teach us, uh, you would share with us the encouragement, Lord, that we need. 
but also, Lord, provide to us the challenge that we need to keep on, to press on, to run this race, Lord, and follow you wherever it might lead. And Lord, we believe today. Encourage and help us in that belief, Lord. And Father, thank you for all the truths that we've sung about today and all the things that have been mentioned and, and the, the, the so much, that, Lord, that we've already learned. May you continue to teach us so your Holy Spirit speak to us. Lord, we're listening to your voice today. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice in this passage twice there, speaks to us pretty directly, does it not? And says to you, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And I think every single time we come into a church service or we come under the sitting, uh, we, we sit under the preaching of and teaching of God's word or we read it for ourselves, uh, we have that choice in so many ways to, to allow ourselves to draw near to God, to humble ourselves before him, to find ourselves softened under the word of God or we have this choice here as he says, the hardening of our hearts in rebellion. And so he's making this, this contrast here. Um, Hebrews chapter three, uh, when I first read it, and, and as is in Hebrews many times, as it says, it is somewhat of a puzzle as you read it the one time and you find yourselves lost in so many of the different references and what's going on. But as you start to figure it out, like a Rubik's cube that's switched around and turned and all of a sudden you begin to see the sides come together and it all seems to make sense. And, and it's a beautiful explanation of this message. This is a sermon. And the more I study Hebrews, it's literally one sermon uh, from beginning to end and so you think I preach long uh, this guy the entire book of Hebrews and everything that he's doing is incredible it is literally written like a sermon where he's weighing out these points for you and then he's he's asking you to respond to those things that he's making and so as we looked in Hebrews 1 and 2 was was all about this comparison and he continues to do that where Jesus is better Jesus is greater Jesus is superior his name is superior than the angels. Jesus is better than the law and the prophets or anybody that came before him. His word is greater. He's greater than the angels or any heavenly being that's been sent down because he's God. Jesus is God. And then we looked, especially at Christmas Day or the day after Christmas, I guess it is, we looked at Jesus is man, that he has become like us. He's taken on flesh. He's dwelt among us and he partook of the same things so that by death he might destroy the power of death that is the devil. And so he is God and he is man. He's the God-man. He is the perfect representation for us and our necessary bridge between God and man. Jesus becomes the faithful high priest. As it says in Hebrews 2, verse 17, therefore he made him to be like brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus becomes that perfect mediator on our behalf. He represents, he is literally the bridge between God and man. And so we are then told to, in chapter three, the very beginning, therefore, because of all the things that we've learned about Jesus so far, look, I'm gonna even keep going with that, he says. Like, I compared him to all these other things that he's greater, but he's even greater than Moses, and he's gonna go on to that and say that in a, mom, in a, in a moment. But he says for us first to look at Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. And I love the way it's just so simply put in verse, uh, chapter three, verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, okay, those of us who've been called by God, those who have uh, been uh, received the word of God, who, who come into this family of being set apart and different like the Hebrew Jewish nation, so we are in the church, set apart as, as separate and holy unto God. Those of you who have seen this, consider Jesus. Consider this. 
the, the word consider is, is deep in the way that it's, it's more than just like a, a perusery kind of look on the outside, like just look over in this direction or have your gaze fall on him. No, it's this, it's this fixated attention. Like, like don't miss this. Fix your eyes on him. I think, in fact, the Women's Bible Study is going to be doing a book. I, I, can't, I think it's the morning one. There's two of them, right? Uh, the, the morning study, I believe, is doing um, Fix Your Eyes, which is a book by Amy Gannett, I believe, and it's from this phrase here. To, and, and in Hebrews 12, it speaks of it like manner. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, fixated is one of the, <laughs> the Advent study we just did as, as well in, in Hebrews uh, leading up to Christmas. And it's a theme throughout the whole book of Hebrews of fixing our eyes, considering Jesus. Think about it, notice, observe. A few weeks ago we used that illustration of the telescope, uh, the James uh, Webb telescope, I believe it is, that was launched successfully, I think, into space. But they, as they look and they gaze into the deep, dark recesses of the universe, the places of the universe that we still have yet charted, we have not mapped, we have not seen, as this telescope will look further than we've ever looked, we're not just to look at those things and say, well, isn't that neat? But rather to look, to fix our eyes and consider and think as to what that means. What implications are, are said by the name Jesus? Consider him, consider him. For he is everything to us. And so Jesus is, is more than just something that we look at or we casually get around to. It is something that our entire lives are oriented around, fixing our eyes on, studying, getting to know, being in a relationship with. And then it says in chapter three, verse one there, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle, and it's a very unique phrase. In fact, uh, the word apostle here in relation to Jesus is the only time in the New Testament it's used, right here. And so it's not a very common designation for Jesus. Jesus is said to be many things in the New Testament, but very uniquely here in Hebrews, he's said to be an apostle. An apostle, uh, the word essentially just means sent one, someone who is sent, like a messenger, uh, someone who is sent by God. And so I think, in, in, for me, it helps me understand that Jesus is a high priest here and he's an apostle sent by God. So it's giving a, a, a sense that we look at Jesus this way that, that he's sent by God for a man and then he is the high priest in order to mediate that bridge between God and man that he's been sent and he is the effectual working high priest, the perfect mediator and so this way we see that, that he is greater than all the other messengers, the angels, he's far greater than them because he's the effectual working high priest sent by God to save mankind. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so we see the apostle, the high priest of our confession, and then he was faithful in verse two. He's appointed, just like Moses was appointed, and Moses was faithful as well. And remember, this is being written to a lot of the, the early church here, the Jewish Christians, they have this background as the Hebrews, knowing the Old Testament, and Hebrews is full of the Old Testament. Moses was revered as the top of the list, the greatest of the greats in their history. You know, for us as Americans, we think of the George Washingtons, the Abraham Lincolns, you know. Here we have in the Hebrew history and we even, for us as Christians, we look back in the Old Testament and we just, and extraordinary examples that you find in the Old Testament of King David and Moses. And then no, maybe, no, no person maybe greater than any of them would, would be potentially Elijah. 
So in the, for a Jewish mindset to think back into the Old Testament and to say that someone could possibly be greater than Moses was absurd. For Moses, in fact, in Numbers chapter 12, verse six, God says of Moses that many others have tried to uh, do this and do that and other prophets come in and say this and say that, but they are all different because God himself says in, Hebrew, in Numbers 12, he says in verse six that, that he's actually faithful in all my house and I speak mouth to mouth or face to face with Moses. But all these other guys, these prophets, all of you, I speak to you through visions and dreams. But with Moses, I speak face to face. Whoa, like that is, I mean, that's intense, right? I mean, that's, that's like a, there's nobody else like that. And so they were right to revere Moses in a way for he would walk into the tent of meeting. He would go into that tabernacle and the cloud would descend and, and he would be in presence and be in the presence of God. And, and it, he went up onto Mount Sinai and God passed before him and his face glowed and shined. So who in the world could be even likened to be better than Moses? Nobody, nobody. And yet of course even Moses, as we're gonna find out, he wasn't perfect and he failed. He even failed to enter the promised rest. He failed in his leadership as well. And so there's someone who's even greater than him, and that is Jesus. And so it's like a, he tops it, you know? Like you thought that was impressive, you think this is impressive, you think this is impressive, I'll show you something even greater than that. This is, this is Jesus, he's greater than all that. Just like uh, verse three tells us about this wonderful illustration that works so nicely for us, right? We get this illustration. This is one, finally, Jordan, I can understand this illustration, right? Verse three and four talks about building and construction, okay? Something I'm, I'm not good at, but so many of you are and have walked me through the processes and as I've been around builders and construction workers and as I've been around um, these things and, and had the pleasure of the last year to help kind of seeing the process of building our house, it, it was so neat to kind of see how, what an amazing product you receive at the end. When you, when you see something that was literally just woods and then it becomes a, a livable, beautiful house to live in. A space that was just nothing and now has been constructed to be useful and to be made into something from the ground up, every trade from the bottom up. And, and you can see the construction process and yet what, what's so fascinating in here is this idea that, 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 that Moses is amazing, Jesus is greater than him, and yes, the house at the end is incredible. You look at what you've made and you think about the biggest things that even mankind has ever constructed. And these incredible, the Colosseums, and then you think back to the temples uh, and the pyramids of Egypt and all these things that we have made and constructed and built. And yet what is more impressive, the thing that is built or the person who built it? Right? What's more important the house at the end or the construction worker who made it, the person who designed it, the house builder versus the house itself. And so he, he's making a comparison using a house as an illustration. He says the house is an illustration. Then he says there's also something that lives within that house, a household or a family. And so he takes the house and he uses an illustration and he says it's a family and a household and yet who is the owner, who's the builder of all of those things, of all things in the world? It is God and Jesus is the Lord of that house and that household. He, he operates in that household as the son, not a servant within the house, but as the son over the house. And he not only uh, do we look at the house, we don't worship the creation, we worship the creator, right? And so the, the illustration is so easy for us to grasp, I think. It's just a natural way for us to see this kind of comparison. An artist is more worthy of the worship, more worthy of the honor than the painting itself, right? 
a house or a builder is more worthy of the honor than the house itself. The author of the book is more worthy of receiving honor than the book itself. The mechanic and the car, the pilot, the plane, the designer, the, des- the design or the creator and over the creation. And this is how we are supposed to look here as at Moses and at Jesus and ourselves. Here it says, Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses as more glory than the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone. Don't we know that, right? But the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful in this house when it's built. He served in this house, but even as a servant, that's all he was. He was a steward of God's house. He was a servant of this house. He didn't build the house. He was a servant in it. Faithful, he was, yes. But Jesus not only built the house, he owns the house, he runs the house, and in, in that house, we are the house. And you're like, that really was not actually super helpful and actually more confusing. And I know sometimes Hebrews does that. It takes one little like illustration and it turns it and builds it. It's almost like a diamond. You keep spinning it and you see different colors. And so he uses this, this illustration of a house because in verse uh, six, he says, and we are his house. So Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. And I think it's a wonderful way to look at it because I think it helps even throughout the New Testament in a variety of different places. It describes the church as a house or a household, a building built with living stones. You know, as we take over this house, in a way, Jesus has come into the house that God has built and he operates as a son, the heir of all that is in the household, the inheritance that you maybe hope to leave your children one day. You build a a business or you build a a life and you hope to leave something for your children and in this day and time, your firstborn son would come and inherit all that you have built in that business and in that life and they would inherit the authority from you as the father and they would inherit and receive that and then operate in that. Jesus is likened here to the firstborn son of all creation and particularly here the church of God, the saints, the believers, those who received a heavenly calling. Jesus is the firstborn son that comes into this place and he, he is the Lord, he is the son, he is the heir. And yet, as was mentioned earlier by Lars, it, even in his prayer speaking of adoption, we, we are not just always on the outside looking in, but we're likened in this house as we are the house. We live in this household. We are God's, part of God's family this is what's so unique about this passage and so beautiful about it that Jesus receives the church as his inheritance but not only that, we are grafted into this family and we are now heirs of the blessing that we didn't deserve in the beginning but we are now family in this household. First Timothy 3.15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. There is this building but in this building, we are adopted into it. For Ephesians 5, uh, chapter 1, it says, in, in love, he predestined us to, for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. For in him, it says in verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. That inheritance has been passed down to you and me as sons and daughters. Wow. 
And then, then it says in this house, uh, we, are, we are a family, we are a household. Hebrews 2.11 in the last chapter talked about how Jesus came and he then calls us brothers and sisters for he partakes on, takes on flesh like you and me. <laughs> and he, he, he is like with us in this. He can relate to us. We are part of his family for he has become human and he partakes with us and he now calls us as it says in Hebrews 2.11. He says he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's incredible. And then we live together in this house as difficult as it might be sometimes. You know, we're, as we're saying around the church and the staff sometimes, we're not, we're not a business. We don't operate in the same way. We're a family, you know. We're a family, and, and in, the, in the church, it's a family. We are built up into this family and put in together to work together. First Peter 2, 5 speaks about how we are a spiritual house, a temple of the living God. First Peter 2, 5 says we are built up as a spiritual house. You are likened to a living stone placed into the wall, into the foundation there, as Jesus is the cornerstone of that foundation built up into a house. Gentiles and Jews living together throughout history, and through the future, this house and this, this household will stand forever. It will never be cut off like a tree that can be rooted out and cut off and fallen down. For this house will stand forever. There will be heirs, for Jesus is the eternal heir of this throne. You could say like my house, the house of Moody, right? You know, <laughs> or you can think back to like medieval times of kings and queens, the house of lords or whatever, right? The house of Moody may go for however long. But this, you could say the house of Jesus, considering Jesus, the house of Jesus, it will go on forever. It will never end. And in those who live in this house, and are part of this house, who hold on to this confidence and courage that they have in this household, will live forever. And yet, as we kind of bring all of this in the ending part here, which so much of this is gonna lead into next week's uh, message in chapter four, it gives us some tension here. Because in, in verse six, and in particular verse 14, you're gonna see these, this word. It's a very small word, but, but it gives us a challenge. It's the word if. Do you guys see that? Verse six. And it says, and Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if it says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If indeed. And then in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. This is who we are. We share together in Christ. We're partakers with him. So it says in verse 14, we are partakers. We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Gives us this picture of like a race that we're running like a marathon. And there's a tension here, not necessarily a guilt-ridden, like you've got to do these things in order to become. We, we, we preach grace here. This is the grace of God that has been poured richly out onto you and me, and we're grateful for that. We don't do in order to receive. Jesus has done all that we have, but it is now likened to like James speaks about. We have faith, but our works back up that faith. For faith without works... It's dead. And so he's saying, in this race, you hold fast, you keep hold. It's a confidence. And I love the way uh, this really, this third kind of main idea that we're looking at is holding on. Don't let go. 
Hold fast to your confidence. The NLT, I love the way it translates it many times. I had somebody share this with me uh, this past week as they were talking about, they were reading ahead, uh, kind of preparing their hearts before the messages, and they were looking at Hebrews 3, and I, I said, oh, I'm preaching on that, and they said, and I love the way the NLT puts it in this verse six. It says, keep our courage, keep our courage. Keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ, as it says in verse six. I, I don't know about you, uh, but that word courage has popped up many times in my life and in sermons and in things I've been reading recently. The word courage, courage, courage. The word confidence here, it could be. But, but that idea of in fear, even last week we looked at it in, in Psalm 23, right? Where it speaks about this kind of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. There's fear there. I, yet I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This courage that is needed to keep walking, to press on, to press on through the valley of the shadow of death and not stay there. To f- press on, to hold fast to the one who leads us. His rod and his staff will comfort you. And so I, I love this way that it gives us this sense of, okay, this is You are in the household, you are in the family of God, keep on keeping on, hold on to the ball. It's like when you coach or you play sports, and I know, forgive me, and I always do sports references, it's just that's what you get, right? Um, But uh, this idea, when you, you, in football, you know, you give, you hand the ball, and and when you hand the ball, you you tell them to to hold it on tightly, right? Because people these days, especially, are always trying to strip the ball. Right, in basketball, you coach them, and then they come down, especially when I was tall. You, you take the rebound, you come down, and you don't bring the ball down here and, and just loosely hold the ball in the middle of traffic. You hold the ball down here, and everyone's swiping at the ball. They're always trying to steal it. They're always trying to grab it. They're always trying to tie you up and take it. As a big man, you take the ball, and you hold it tight. My coaches used to say you keep your elbows out, and you move your body, and you hold that ball tightly. You have the ball. Don't let it go. And it would be, they'd be so frustrated when you get that ball and you bring it down here low and everybody, no matter what their height, can swipe at it and steal the ball from you. In so many, kind of a silly way, that illustration, I think, helps us think through this passage. He's saying, you are the house of God. You are in his family. Stay holding on to your confidence and your faith. Keep hold of it. Don't let it go. Don't let it slip. As it says in verse 12, don't allow yourself to fall away, he said. Don't, don't let the ball be stolen. And so, so much of this comes down to our belief. The spiritual truth here is warning us to those who, us who have the ball to, to, to believe, to believe and hold on to our belief. Don't let it go. It says because, as it says later on in Hebrews, the righteous live by faith. Belief by faith. And we are not of those kinds of people, as it says in Hebrews, that we are not those kinds of people who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve our souls. We stand firm. We hold fast under the ball. We hold fast under the courage that God gives us to walk through these times of difficulty and challenging, challenging times. And so he says, hold fast to the courage that we have. Keep walking, hold on to the ball. And then really as he gives into this whole quotation, verses seven through 11, and really leading even into the end of chapter three, he's quoting and rehashing this context here. He's quoting from Psalm 95. And briefly as we kind of close here, I wanna look at uh, Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 is really the storyline that he's quoting here from. 
And, and it's gonna tie in here because he's telling you to hold on to it and believe, don't fall away. Don't be presumptuous and think that just because you are where you are right now that you can just kick back, lazily re, uh, uh, relax, and God's gonna come and bring you home and you don't need to do anything. This is a sense that, no, 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 this is a race we're running. Keep hold, be aware. There's a warning here of being careful and so he's exhorting us. And so he says in chapter, he, he kind of quotes from the story that you should be familiar with if you grew up in church. If you didn't grow up in church and you're kind of new to all this, hopefully this will help you get the sense of what's going on in chapter 20 and happening here in Hebrews chapter three. For he quotes a story where he speaks about Meribah. Meribah, which was the name that was given to the waters of Meribah, which is the location where Moses strikes the rock. Do you remember this? Instead of speaking to it. And so in, it says in, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but in chapter, Numbers chapter 20, verse two, it said, now there, were no, there was no water, uh, sorry, Numbers 20, verse two, now there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together with Moses, against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, oh, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord in the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle, right? And we kind of laugh today because we're so much smarter than them. We don't quarrel or do any of this, right? And we say, how those silly uh, Israelites, how in the world could they do such a thing? Isn't just a few months prior they saw the Red Sea part, right? (laughs) They saw the miraculous things happen in Egypt and now they're quarreling because they don't have a little water? Oh, silly Israel. And then we're like, oh, well, we do that all the time, don't we? And so yet this storyline is so important because God tells Aaron and Moses to go out, take your staff with you, and before the assembly of the entire congregation, I want you, as it says in verse eight, so it says, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, and so you shall bring water out of the rock and give them drink to all the congregation and the cattle. So they went out. Verse 10 Numbers 20, verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, and you think I'm a hard preacher, what does he say? Hear now, you rebels, (laughs) okay? I love that. Look, Moses talked like that, man. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of the rock? Verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff, and it says he did it twice. I wonder if he hit it And then he realized his mistake and he doubled down on it and he hit it and God yet was faithful still. And the water came out and abundantly the congregation drank of their livestock. But what what does God say to Moses? Verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you what? Because you you struck the rock, because you did this, or because you, because you did not believe. You did not believe. You did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah. Meribah means quarreling, arguing, bickering, complaining. Where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, uh, he should be called holy. So if you go back all the way into Hebrews chapter three, this is the story that he's referencing here. And the storyline that in the context and the illustration that he's giving, that don't, don't presume that you're just good because you, who you are and where you grew up and what you knew. Don't just presume things, he's saying. Remember, even the people in the Old Testament that saw the Red Sea part before their eyes, they walked across dry land. Even they doubted and even they 
did not believe in the word of the Lord. So the warning is stern for us, for even in Numbers chapter 13, they sent spies into the land, and the spies came out. There's giants, there's all these things, and, and, and because it says again in there that they did not believe, they will not enter the place of rest. And so he's giving us an illustration to warn us of the dangers of acting as if everything's okay, and warning us to be careful and to take care because the rest that God has promised to those who follow him and persevere to the end is waiting for you to take hold of as a gift. But make sure that you are part of the group that believes, he's saying ultimately. Look at verse 12, 13 as we kind of wrap this up. He's ultimately at the end here saying take care, be careful. He is giving us this reminder. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here he's introducing a very complicated idea that we do not have time to get into today. But in coming weeks, you can study it in your small groups and such. In chapter six, he delves into this deeper. And it's a challenging passage where it talks about almost in a sense as it makes it feel like we could lose our salvation or as if our there's nothing secure. Is, can I have a faith that's secure? And do, can I have assurance of myself? Is that even possible if I can just fall away? It says in this word, the word fall away is actually the word apostasy. Like you believed and now you no longer believe. You have rejected the belief of your past. You have committed apostasy, this word of rejecting. And so he's saying ultimately you, you need to be careful. So take care lest any of you has an unbelieving heart like those people in the wilderness of the old, like they did not believe and they did not enter the promised rest. Don't let that temporary physical rest that they were entering, don't let that be the eternal thing that you fall, that you just ultimately find out that you've fallen away from the living God, you don't believe in him, and you all as well will not enter the promised rest that he has preserved for those who endure, for those who believe. And then it gives us an encouraging word, I think, for in verse 13, it doesn't just leave us to just hope or in a sense on our own as an individual. For I think that that's that person who's individually falling away and floating and drifting on their own. Rather, it contrasts that with verse 10. But for the church, in a sense, for that household, exhort one another. Encourage one another. You're here today. I'm really thankful you're here today. I really am as it gets really lonely preaching to an empty room, okay? I believe me, I've done it during COVID, it stinks, okay? Um, I'm really glad you're here today. And yet sometimes, I know sometimes you must get here and you're like, why, why am I here? Why did I go drive on all those roads, you know, the iciness? What is it, what, what, is it worth gathering together? Is it, is it worth being together? It is. It's actually, it's actually, it is like, it's a matter of life or death. This passage literally is telling us that. Because what does it say? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. As long as you have today. You, we have today. That's what we know of right now. We have this moment. Let us gather together and exhort one another. I know exhorting, you're like, well, that was a great word of exhortation, Pastor. And I, that maybe we don't say that as much, but that's what a, a message, a word is. And yet you as well, not just me, you as well exhort one another. You can encourage one another. You can strengthen each other's faith because I know there are many days when I come in here and I don't want to stand up on this platform and preach to you because I'm not feeling whatever it might be and life is difficult. But rather you together come together and support me. 
We encourage one another. We exhort one another. We bolster each other's faith. Why? Because ultimately this is a matter of life or death. Because if we don't gather together, if we don't encourage one another, if we don't allow the church and the household and the family of God to come together and say to everyone, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, he's saying here that we have a tendency to drift and fall away and pursue our own way and to pursue other things that are not worthy of worship and to be distracted and to fall off the way and drift like a, like a ship that is listless in the sea. Like those who doubted the word of God and did not believe his word, but rather, no, 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 Joshua and Caleb saying, no, we can do it. Come on, people, let's go into the land and possess it. Come on, he's saying. And so just in like manner, we come together and do the same thing. And we are saying that, look, people, if you are in the household of God, if today you walk into this house and you believe, you know what the Bible says? It says you share in Christ, we share together. We're like a big happy family sharing a meal. That's what we do at communion. We share in Christ. We share of him and we eat and drink of this faith and this belief. And then what does he say? Sit back, kick and relax and don't even care about it. Don't work for it. Don't, don't walk in this. Don't run the race. No, he says run even harder in a sense for he says if indeed hold on to your original confidence firm to the end. Walk into the rest. Take of the gift of the promised rest of God. So often, uh, one commentator says that so much of apostasy of God, whether it's partial or total, originates in unbelief. It's unbelief, an unbelieving heart that doesn't believe God's word. And, and I think so many times we can be like the disciples, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's why I come to church. That's why I need you guys. And I think that's why we need each other family of God to come together to say together I believe Lord help my unbelief I don't want an evil and unbelieving heart to allow me to fall away and drift away into my own ways I need the church of God as a community to come together and to encourage one another exhort one another life is hard right now the, the world out there is a scary place but can we come together and encourage each other to press on keep on keeping on the Bible is full of metaphor after metaphor after metaphor of running Galatians 6, 9, take hold of it if you do not give up. Hebrews 10, 36, if you have need of endurance, keep on. Hebrews 12, 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Revelation 3, 11, hold fast to what you have so no one would seize your crown. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that we are all in a race as the runners that run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. We holding fast to our confidence. We hold fast to our faith and we encourage one another in it. For believers, we are to keep on keeping on. Run the race. Do not give up. He says, hold fast onto it. Cling to it. Grab hold to it and do not let go. For the hope that we have set before us is why we run. May God grant us the hearts that need this to hear this truth and to encourage one another along life's way, along life's race as we're all running this race together. And to me, that's, that's one of the many reasons I think it's so valuable to gather and so valuable to go to church. I don't say go to church just to sit in a pew, don't go just go to church to do it, and yet I believe God uses things like that. 
He uses this moment that you're allowing yourself to submit to the preaching and teaching of God's word. He uses this to keep you and to hold you and to keep you accountable and to press on. He uses small conversations that you have with one another before and after church and in life as you walk and you work together as you encourage each other and say, hey brother, hey sister, I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. I'm with you. Hey, this is what I learned out of my word. Let me encourage you in this because we don't know how long we have. You don't know what's around the corner, but as long as you have today, let none of you harden your heart. As long as you have today, soften your heart to one another. Allow God's word to penetrate it, to take root, and to bear fruit. We don't know. But I love what 1 John 5 says, what we can know. You can know. You don't have to live in doubt and fear. <laughs> 1 John 5 says, who, who is it that has overcome the world? Who, who overcomes the world? Those who believe in Jesus. And I think the, if you believe, if you are a believer, he's saying continue to consider Jesus and believe in him and keep running. Don't give up. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we need you today. We ask God that you would help our belief today. And in so many ways, however we want to say that, Lord, would you strengthen our faith? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you exhort our, our wanderings and our desires that are not correct and do not align with your holiness and your righteousness? And may your spirit be alive in us, Lord. And God, today it can be so easy to be distracted and to be frustrated and to be depressed, but Lord, I pray that you would uh, encourage us in the, in the life that you give, the redemption that we have, the, the fact that we are in the household of God, adopted as heirs of the future eternal blessing. God, we have much to rejoice. We have much to praise you for, for you are worthy of it all, as we sing. You are worthy of it all. God, we believe in you. Sometimes, Lord, I just need to say that. I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ, his only son. Lord, we believe in these things. Lord, help us to walk in it, to not lose hope, to keep on keeping on and run the race. And God, may, may you work your spirit out today within the people here present and those who cannot make it with us this morning. May your spirit be present with them. Lord, that you would allow one another to exhort each other today, to encourage each other today to keep on running. We thank you, God, for these truths and the power that you give. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>